Welcome to Social Workers Break Room. This is Imelda. And I'm Jennifer. And this week we bring you five day, five. <laughs> Let's start again. Cut. <laughs> Cut. Um, okay. And this week we bring you five tips for the upcoming semester. And how to make the most out of your internship from your two favorite professors. Stay with us. 2020 edition. COVID. <laughs> <laughs> And we're live. <laughs> okay. Today, we want to talk about a topic that is very relevant right now, since everyone's going back to school and fall semester is in full swing already. So um, as you might know, Jennifer and I were both instructors at a local university. Um, so we both teach social work courses and we also are either supervisors for interns or field liaisons for interns so we want to start off by sharing with you what we're doing this semester each semester changes it changes the courses that we teach how many students we supervise so Jennifer, so what are you doing this semester? How things look like for you? Yeah, so this semester I am privileged to be teaching grad school. Um, so I have MSW students this semester. So teaching two graduate level courses this fall. Um, and then I have a couple different students. So if you didn't know, fun fact, I'm actually licensed in three states, um, Arizona, New York, and Pennsylvania. So I'm taking students from both a university in Arizona and a couple from a university in New York. So super excited to um, supervise those folks. And Amelda, you're a liaison. How many folks are you taking this semester? It depends on what the school assigns me, but most semesters I have between 10 and 15 students that I supervise and yeah it's a lot and some of them are local so for the ones that are local here in Phoenix I'm able to meet with them in person but most semesters I also get like a good combination of online students as well so and this looks a little bit different we have to do a little sim calls and just you know remote coaching um, because they some of my students are placed in agencies all over the states I have quite a few students who are in rural areas uh, which adds another layer of barriers with finding placement. So that is usually interesting. Um, and this semester, I'm also teaching two classes online. These are graduate level courses. Mm -hmm. I think the first one is human behavior and the social environment. And then for the second course, I am leading the diversity and oppression course, which I really love that class. The conversations are very, very insightful every semester. So I'm looking forward to that. And we know that this school year will be like no other. You know, um, we have experience in the spring semester, how things just drastically change for everyone. And I think we're still trying to adapt to all the changes. So we want to share with you a little bit of our insight into, you know, some tips to be successful, both in the classroom and in your field practice, you know, whatever school looks like for you and you know in the field too like especially with internships and field placements and how uh, we're all just trying to find something that works for everyone so we will start off with five tips from your two favorite instructors and we want to share some tips that we have learned along the way and just feedback from the instructor side to the student side so the first one is APA. APA style, it's important. Tell us, Jennifer, why. 
Yeah. So, I mean, a couple different reasons. Part of it is, you know, all of your schools, if you're getting an accredited degree, which if you're not getting an accredited degree in social work, oh, and if you're not sure, Google it um, and make sure your school is accredited by the CSWE if you're in the United States. But that is a chosen format for most schools of social work to maintain their accreditation and standards across the board to make sure that when we say accredited social worker, we all had a similar educational experience that prepared us for the world. And part of that is using APA style. So there's a couple great resources for that. I feel like, you know, from high school on through grad school, I've directed people to the Purdue OWL website. Incredibly helpful. If you Google APA style or Purdue OWL, it should come right up for you. But also, you know, so that your papers are of similar format. You know, it helps us grade them. It helps us make sure that we can judge the content, you know, which is the most important thing, right? We want you to be smart, clinical critical thinkers. And when we have to focus on things like commas and did you put the period before after the parentheses, you know, it detracts from the great work that you're saying, your points that you're making. And also plagiarism. Mm. If you are, if the idea is not something that came from your very own brain, and if you didn't write the book on the topic, then you have to cite where you're getting the information from. Yep. Some of you are brilliant, but most of you didn't write the book on human behavior. You didn't write the book on, you know, PJ's theory. So if you're getting information from somewhere, you have to cite it. Yep. And in-text citations are super, super important. So, so a common mistake that we see from students is that they add the references and the reference page and they think that this is enough uh, because, you know, some of the content that I that wrote on the, on the, on the um, assignment, it's it's referenced on the reference page, but we don't know which part of the assignment is tied to that reference. So you have to, you have to put in the, in the in text citations because um, like Jennifer said, this is not something, even if you are paraphrasing and you're explaining in your own words, that's still content that it, it came, it, from, it an came from someone else. Yeah. So I say at the end of each sentence, evaluate it. If the thought came from your own head, move right along. If you're using information or drawing a conclusion from someone else's information, there needs to be an in-text citation at the end of that sentence. It's a pain, but it lets us know exactly where you're getting that content from. And it's just good practice and style to writing those great research papers, if that's something you're interested in your career, or just making sure that you're synthesizing information in a way that, you know, the American Psychological Association that says this is a great way to present it and make sure everyone gets credit for the incredible research they did, mm -hmm. you know, in the first place. Yep. So tip number two use feedback from assignments and put them into action. Your instructors and your professors will most likely give you feedback on your papers and your assignments and use this feedback to drive your next assignment. Uh, we do remember, because they so if I give you feedback on a specific section or tell you like, hey, elaborate more on this, on an assignment, I'm expecting you to utilize that feedback and those tips that I gave you on the first assignment to apply it to the second one. So usually, you know, uh, uh, instructors are more lenient towards the beginning of the semester because, you know, you're learning our style of grading and we're learning your style of writing. But after a few times, if we have given you the same type of feedback, we're expecting you to put it into action in the next assignment. So this is something important to remember. 
Yeah, so important. You know, if we've talked to you about commas several times or in-text citations several times, you know, when you get to that second or third paper, we don't want to still be looking at commas and in-text citations. And, you know, professors who are taking the time to go through your paper and look, you know, if you're seeing especially little things like commas and quotation marks, that means like we're really taking time and energy to make sure that you are great writers by the end of your program. You know, maybe you're a BSW going on to your MSW or an MSW who's going to be working professionally. We want you to take that feedback and apply it in your you know, your whole life. So, you know, we could be binging Netflix, but there we are taking time and energy to make sure that you are good stewards of the profession and writing as well. Um, Another thing that we see frequently is as you, you know, kind of grow up in your profession, especially, you know, as you're getting towards the end of your BSW or starting your MSW, um, is we're really looking for that critical thinking. You know, so in high school, you might have done those papers where it's like read, synthesize, summarize, where like you read an article, you summarize it, or when you do those essays where you explain a process. What we're really looking for, you know, towards the end of your bachelor's experience and throughout your whole master's experience is evidence of that critical thinking. So we're not looking for you to just regurgitate or summarize. You know, if you went to an agency, we don't want you to take their whole website and spit it into a paper. I can go to their website. You know, how is this relevant to your client? How is this relevant to the problem? Why would you use this approach? When would you use it? Who is it appropriate for? Who isn't it appropriate for? How is this similar or different to another approach, theory, or solution? Mm -hmm. Um, So taking it that step further, not just getting the information, but okay, I'm a social worker or I'm about to be a social worker. How do I use this? What do I do? Why is this information important? You know, that's the stuff that we're really looking for. That should be like the meat and potatoes of your paperwork. And then your APA is your seasoning. (laughs) I like that. And then everything else is, you know, kind of accoutrement vegetables in there. (laughs) Um, But making sure that your paperwork has that meat to it where we say they get it. They understand how and when to apply it versus like, you know, I can read my own article yeah. and I can read the abstract myself. <laughs> and I know that um, a lot of assignments, they include that section where, you know, where the implications for social workers or the yes. implications for the social work field. So use that section of your papers to really dive into showing that you're grasping the concept of the things that the articles that you read or that you're referring to in your paper, but how you're applying that to the specific community that you work with or specific population that you are talking about in your paper. Um, And this leads to the next common topic that we see is that we do notice when you're rushing your assignments. I know we all have been through school and there's sometimes that life happens, you know, Uh, things happen that are out of your control and um, you have to rush through an assignment at the last minute, the night before, whatnot. We have all done it, but it does get reflected on your assignment. So we do notice when you're just trying to fill the gap with some long sentences. So taking the time to plan your assignments and plan your your papers and do your research uh, definitely shows uh, when when we're reading your assignment definitely we can tell who spent a good amount of time working on this and looking for the right references um, speaking of references I just thought about something usually it's suggested to use references that are not older than 10 years 
from now. So I see students who cite some articles from like 1982 the 90s, yeah. or the 80s. And I'm like, okay, well, this I mean, article this is older than you. Is, yeah, super old and might not be very relevant. So let's try to keep it at, you know, within a 10 year frame because things have changed so much in the, you know, last decade. Um, so, yeah. So maybe, you know, as a rule of thumb, stay away from articles that are older than... 10, 15 years old. Yeah. And with that, you know, with the whole rushing your assignment and the stuff, you know, we both work for a university that has a lot of tech deployed, you know, and I teach, for example, maybe like 24 students in a semester and a lot of the assignments are due midnight on Sunday and nothing gives me more anxiety than going to bed at 10 o'clock and there's two assignments in there, but then I wake up in the morning and all 24 are there. Like we know, we see when you turn your stuff in Um, and a lot of times it is reflected in that quality and thinking of those good references and, you know, evaluating each sentence individually. Did I write this? Did I come up with this? Is this an original thought? Can I include an original thought? For those of you that are thinking about, you know, potentially going further in your education, you know, a lot of doctorate and PhD programs have a standard of how much of the paper can be citation or how much of the paper can be quotes. Mm -hmm. So if you're planning on going into that, you know, highest level of education there or research is something that's interesting or important to you, eventually almost your entire paper will have to be original ideas, will have to present that critical thinking. So you'll have to continue to take it that one step further, which is difficult to do if you're, you know, doing it, especially at the last minute. So Mm -hmm. if you're writing it two hours before it's due, it's going to be that regurgitation paper versus, you know, even if you write most of it on Friday and you let it sit around in the back of your brain over the weekend and then brush it up on Sunday, you know, with a new conclusion or, oh, something came up, you know, a place I thought I could apply this. But know that we do notice. We notice when you turn things in. We notice when something isn't your best work and we want you to do your best work. We want you to succeed. Yes, we do. So number four on our list of tips, always approach your new class with an open mind. I can't stress this enough um, in my diversity and oppression class. One of the things that we asked during the first discussion boards, because it's online, um, is what obstacles or barriers you anticipate having in this class or, Mm -hmm. you know, some concerns that you might have in this class. And most of the time students, you know, reply like, oh, you know, I feel like I have some bias that I haven't explored. And I'm sure that, you know, my, some of my views will be challenge, but I'm ready to learn. And all these responses are great. But when sometimes when I get responses from students saying like, I have no worries about this class. I have no bias. I'm the first bias free person. I am. I know that I'm not racist. I know that I'm not homophobic. And I know that I'm not going to have any issues in this class. I'm like, "Mm, that's a little problematic too, because each course that you take, each in the new information that that you are receiving um, has the potential for you to learn something, you know. So so always approach a new class or your new assignment with an open mind and with the idea that you're going to learn something that you didn't know. And your professors too, right? You know, a lot of us are really keen on rate my professor, especially when we're registering or we're figuring out like, oh, you know, on LinkedIn, what their background is. Approaching your professors with an open mind too, right? Like we're here because we want you to succeed. 
genuinely. So even if your professor, you know, maybe on paper doesn't look like they have experience that you feel is relevant to your dream job, or, you know, why is this person teaching this or so-and-so, you know, said on rate my professor that this person is awful, you know, approach your professors with an open mind. You know, I firmly believe there are six ways to do everything. And maybe your professor does things one or two of the ways you would never pick. You know, Mm -hmm. you might end up liking it. You might never like it. And that's okay. But making sure that you approach not just the content, but the folks and your peers in your classroom and your professor with an open mind, which brings us to tip number five. Challenge your views, not because something is in a textbook or is presented in a class is the final way or is the way it should be. So, um, you know, part of approaching a new class with an open mind is also being open to challenge other people on their views and challenge other people on the way things have been done. So sometimes we feel, as especially as students, sometimes we feel a little shy to be calling out peers or professors when they say something problematic, but it doesn't mean that you have to do it right, you know, when when the conversation is happening. You know, it can be at the end of the class, you approach the professor, or you send an email, or you send a message saying like, hey, you know, um, we discussed this in class, and I thought it was a little problematic because X, Y, and C. I think the part of it is like not being afraid of saying something that might be controversial, I guess, right. you know, because this is how we learn, and this is how we push each other's boundaries and points of view. And vulnerability is scary, Mm -hmm. right? You know, to say, I'm having a reaction to this. Can you help me unpack that? Or you said something that, you know, really bothered me. You know, I want to, the code of ethics says that we should be going to folks directly, you know, so being able and being open to having that first conversation, you know, if it's a violent space where you feel unsafe, you know, by all means, take the measures that you need to, but opening yourself to the possibility of having that direct conversation and saying, you know, things that we teach our clients, right? Using those I statements. I felt, you know, uncomfortable when you, you know, did whatever it was in class, you know, said something, used a word. And maybe you're, especially if you're further along in your career, using those motivational interviewing skills, you know, do you mind if I provide you some education, getting consent before moving forward and providing the education? So using all those skills that we want clients to use and starting to exemplify them in our own lives in the classroom when something is not sitting well with us. Mm-hmm. So we know classes are going to be very different this year. Imelda is teaching online in asynchronous classes, which synchronous and asynchronous classes are really fun words I got to learn this semester. (laughs) So basically asynchronous classes are like your traditional online classes where you access on your own time. You don't have to be there from X time to Y time. And then synchronous classes are the ones that you go to all together. So Imelda's teaching online asynchronously. And Imelda, what's, you know, kind of your tips and perspectives on how folks can make the most of those online experiences because I'm sure a lot more of them are happening this semester. Yeah. You know, I feel like online school in any level has its pros and cons um, because it gives that flexibility of people to do it on their own time, but it also presents some challenges because people can do it on their own time. Right. So it's, you know, the same the same um, barrier that it's, you know, sometimes it's, it's um, difficult for people to navigate. So I always recommend do your readings, even if you don't have to specifically talk about the assigned readings in your discussion board or whatnot, the concepts that are 
schedule on the syllabus for for your class they will give you a really good foundation for what for what is to come next either in the same course later on or the second part of the course you know if there's like a 501 and a 502 course um, the foundation material that you have in the first section is going to be very very important so you get out of it as much as you put in and some concepts and theories um, will be used throughout your whole career, your whole education as a social worker. So make sure that you take the time to grasp those concepts, those theories, those ideas, um, and that you feel comfortable with the material, um, you know, not just brush through it to do an assignment. Um, you know, taking that, I think having that, finding a balance, something that works for you to do your online schooling is very, very important because remember that you're paying for this, right? Even if it's, you know, online and you have the flexibility, you're paying for this. So we want you to succeed as much as possible and get out of this what you paid for. So one tip that I give my students is to engage in class discussions. We have discussion boards every week uh, where we post a question and, you know, the students are uh, able to reply to their peers um, in, in engage in this class discussions. Uh, we do read the comments, at least I do. I read all the comments and the feedback from one student to the other one. And, and I love it to see, you know, the different discussions that happen between peers. I think sometimes that's even more um, beneficial when you engage in this type of conversations with your peers right. than when you're learning from a lecture from a, from a teacher or a professor. So Make sure that you participate in discussion boards and take the initiative to reach out to your instructor. We don't know if you're struggling with something unless you tell us, unless you let us know. Um, if an assignment is going to be laid, make sure that you reach out with enough time, maybe, you know, a few days prior. Uh, if something happened in your life, I, you know, especially during these times, we're trying to be as flexible as possible with students and, you know, helping students navigate all the changes that are happening, uh, you know, at school, at home, etc. So take initiative to reach out to your professors. And I know that Jennifer, you are teaching a little bit different. So you actually have a virtual classroom. How, how is that looking for you? Yeah, it's looking pretty exciting. And, you know, to that point that you're making and a lot of what we're sharing, you know, is applicable between the online classroom, the virtual classroom, or even, you know, some folks that are in person with along the lines of reaching out to your instructor, you know, kind of the phrasing that another really brilliant instructor in my life gave to me was asking students, when could you turn in your best work? Mm. So, and if your instructor is not asking you that, presenting that to your instructor, I could turn in my best work two days from now. Because that's when, you know, I'm going to have childcare. That's when, you know, my job dies down a little bit. So asking yourself and being honest, when can I turn to my best work and presenting that to your professor as well? You know, we can't give you the whole semester, like, right, like (laughs) wait until December and have you turn everything in at once. But having that dialogue. So in a virtual classroom, that's when students learn synchronously, but virtually. So for example, I myself will be on Zoom and so will 24 of my wonderful students. So with that, it looks a little bit different, but you're still going to want to use your peers and your professors, like Imelda was saying. Get contact information when you can. And, you know, above all, listen well and be kind. Mm -hmm. You know, people have probably told you over and over that the field is small, you know, and we live in the sixth largest state in the fifth largest city. And I can tell you, we mean it. We don't say it because it's fun or funny (laughs) or catchy. We mean it. 
you know, one example this last winter, I had the job of training my former professor, you know, he was going to report to me and I was training him, you know, which can be a huge shift in power dynamic. And depending on how that was in the classroom, you know, could have been not so great. And then again, as a hiring manager, transparently, I've moved past resumes of people who are bad partners or non-communicators during group projects. Mm -hmm. So be kind to your peers, listen well, communicate. And I remember when I was going through grad school, that's something that some of our professors will say that look to your left and right. These are the professionals that you will be working with probably for the rest of your careers because you're all in the same age bracket the you know you're graduating around the same time so you will either be competing for the same jobs or you will be working together in a team at some point in your careers and which is completely true I mean yeah. like you and me you know like we have worked together in different settings like now we're teaching together and actually with some of the people that I graduated with in my cohort from my MSW um I have worked with them at some capacity um, in different agencies. So making sure that you're building those connections with your peers is super, super important. Definitely. And speaking of things that are, you know, practical, one thing I'm really trying to do in my classroom this semester, and you know, it may be my bias, which I'm totally willing to acknowledge and accept, but is really pushing for practicality. So, you know, while we think theory and history and why we came to the conclusions and actions we do is super important. The practicality about how we go out into the world and be good stewards of our access to vulnerable humans is so very important. And, you know, and here's a couple reasons, you know, why I believe that and why I want to really center practicality this semester. Um, So transparently, a lot of our theory is outdated. You know, Amel talked about good sources coming from the last 10 years. When was your textbook published? (laughs) You know, a lot of you might find a really alarming answer to that. And a lot of it, even if it was published recently, was still written by or studied with only white folks. Most likely, yes. (laughs) That the problems are solved are often coming from a perspective of privilege. You know, that the idea of safety or good fortune for clients is out there if they just learn how to take it, which is not not true for most of the people of color we serve. So until more syllabi have become decolonized, it's difficult for me at least to lean heavily on those textbooks. Also, because when you go out into the job market, there's not going to be four to eight weeks of paid practical on the job training. Social service jobs are some of the most underfunded positions in the United States. You know, also shouting out to our teacher pals on this one. So when you're hired, it's usually because someone left and there's a whole stack of clients and files to pick up or because the agency is so overwhelmed that they're finally hiring for another position. But you'll have a full case or workload on your first day or shortly after. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I always want to be an advocate for good training, but I say it again and again as a manager, there are some skills that I expect you to come out of grad school with, like psychosocial assessments, basic differential diagnosis skills, you know, screening and managing suicide, or at the very least, if you don't come out with these skills, knowing where to go to find those answers, get more information or additional learning on these topics. You know, I'm finding more and more frequently that it's not being taught or that some mm-hmm. social workers understand the theory. You know, for example, like Robert and seven stages of crisis intervention. Um, but when I say, great, you know, your clients in crisis, go do that. People don't know how. They're like, well, I can tell you what they are. Yeah. I'm like, they need all seven. Let's go do them. <laughs> well, yeah, because they, they have studied them in theory, but haven't had the chance to put it in practice and their field placement. Exactly. 
So the more you practice skills in a safe environment for mistakes like school or your internship, the less clients will be impacted when you're more on your own, which you'll often find yourself in many social service jobs. Role playing. Yes. And this semester in spring, you know, again, are like any others before. So I'm used to bringing in interactive activities and small groups and role plays and trying, trying, trying and coaching through the tough spots. Um, So while I'm trying to be creative and if my students are listening, I mean, (laughs) I'm really trying to be creative. Um, It's just different. Yeah. So uh, one way I'm doing a lot of that to learn is to teach them how it shows up in the real world. And, you know, this is what I would do. This is another way to handle it. How do you think you would handle it? Let's practice. Let's get it wrong together. Mm-hmm. You know, interview your mom, screen your dog for depression, create your own crisis safety plan, read an article and write a proposal for your friend group. I mean, I so deeply encourage you to try it in a place where you can, again, make those mistakes and ask questions and get that support you need before you try it on a client. So, and if this idea resonates with you, push your professors. Again, you're paying a lot of money for a very different education. And for some of you, this may have opened up doors and opportunities. I think of all the students who were like, I can never get an MSW. And now, you know, it's fully online and Mm -hmm. the internships are partially virtual. So like, welcome. We're so excited to have you. But for a lot of people, they feel like they're getting less. And that's a totally valid feeling too. So it's your education. Start asking for what you need. You know, for example, stopping a professor to say, that's a great theory or intervention. Where would you see this in, say, insert your dream job? Where would you see this in a hospital? Where would you see this in a school? Where would you see this, you know, theory applying when I'm writing for grants? You know, what kind of questions would I ask a client to get to their stage of development? You know, we talk, we do a lot of that and it shows up on your licensing exam. Anyone who's listening, (laughs) it shows up on both the LM and the LC exams, you know, stages of development. Great. You know them. How do you how do you ask about them? How do you interview a client around that? Asking your professors that or pointing out, you know, X and Y sound very similar. How is the the CSSRS, the Columbia scale for suicide screening? How is that different than assessing and managing suicide risk? You know, they sound similar. What evidence based tool or practice could I use to differentiate them? What situations would I use them in? Could you bring that tool to the next class so we can try it together or where else would I use that? So you know, pushing it back to that practicality so that your education is useful for you the day you step into the field. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you have tangible tools that you can implement. So it's not just something, you know, remembering information from a textbook, but um, asking those more critical thinking questions and how this is implemented in the field will give you that, at least that visual, like, okay, so if I were in this hospital setting, if I were in this, um, you know, crisis response setting, um, this is how I can apply this or how I need to modify this technique to meet the needs of the population that I'm working with. And speaking of trying things, let's talk a little bit about field now. So we know that field is going to look different than ever. So we want to address a couple different pieces of that that hopefully makes that helpful. And then again, try and give you some practical knowledge for success. Mm -hmm. So one thing that's come up at several universities is deferments. So that would mean to move your internship one semester out or a whole year out for some people. So for example, you know, one university is doing instead of the fall spring internship, you can do spring, summer, take your capstone in summer and get your master's. So can you take a deferment? Should you take a deferment? If your school is operating them, 
are they the best choice for you and your family? And really sitting with that question if you need to. You know, I know when I was in school, I I couldn't or I wouldn't because I was trying to get done as fast as humanly possible because of family financial needs. I needed to get out into the workforce. You know, it's kind of an impossible situation to imagine. But Amelda, what do you think that you would have done? I, you know, it's, I, I think it's going to look different for everyone. Um, like our mug says, it depends on the client, but I feel that you, you know, you have to put things into perspective, you know, if going through grad school or going through school, uh, you know, if you're doing your undergrad, it's something that you have a, a strict timeline, you know, like I need to finish by this year or this semester because I need to apply for grad school or the next step or go back to full-time working. Um, sometimes the deferment is not possible because it might change your plan of study and change how how fast you can, you can graduate. But something to keep in mind is also that things are going to look different the plans that we once had when we were hopeful and full of dreams. Back when we were back. ignorant in 2019. <laughs> when we thought, you know, like, oh yeah, this semester is going to be smooth sailing and things are going to be fine. Um, I, you know, things are going to look different in the next, not just only the next semester, but I feel like the next couple of years, especially working in the field and, you know, uh, the social work field that it's so heavily focused on working one-on-one with clients, humans, um, yeah. with humans. And sometimes like the agencies, this is what I tell um, some of my students that sometimes the agencies that we thought about uh, reaching out for internship, they might not be taking interns because right. they don't have the capacity because the person who was supervising interns before, they had to remove that position because of cuts um, during, you know, the pandemic or so things might look a little bit different. So I, I say... Always have an open mind and be open to different possibilities. Um, if your school or uh, your field placement person offers you like, hey, like there's, I know that you really wanted to go into a hospital, but now we have this option of placing you at a shelter, a family shelter. Uh, be open to trying new things. And at the end of the day, you, your experience is going to be valuable because you will be working one-on-one with clients. Whatever their background is, whatever their setting is, um, you're going to get a good experience because you're working one-on-one with the community. So internships are meant to get your feet wet in the field and give you an opportunity to work directly with clients. I know that some students have a preference for you know which placement they would like because they want to getting that experience for future jobs placement. Like, let's say like some students really like the hospital because they think that, oh, I'm going to get higher in that same hospital later on. But that's not the case most of the time. So just, you know, having an open mind and being open to different possibilities, especially as we all try to navigate field placement. Yeah, you know, and we know a lot of students, um, or at least I know a lot of students that are taking a deferment, you know, who had internships in hospitals or really want to be in medical social work. You know, it's very competitive. It's high pay. And in a lot of places, the only way to get in is to have some sort of medical experience. Um, But that doesn't mean it has to be a hospital internship. It's definitely one way. But don't think that, you know, I'm going to get into the hospital into the spring and then they're going to hire me and it's Mm -hmm. going to all work out 
and it's going to be perfect. And this is the only one way to do it. No, you know, dialysis clinics, the VA hospice, other integrated care settings are where a lot of our social workers at the hospital I work at came from, you know, are starting PRN, you know, which is fancy Latin for as needed somewhere. Mm-hmm. You may have to be very independent or willing to study up to fill your knowledge gaps to do it. But that might be another way to get your foot in the door if you're not able to get your dream internship. Also volunteering. It's a strange time to volunteer in the health field, um, but we really need it more than ever. You know, Mm -hmm. we can tell you, you know, for example, um, volunteers will often be sitters or like stay with the person who's on hospice in that field while their loved one, you know, gets a much needed break at the hospital. Sometimes they work at the discharge counter, you know, helping people call cabs or their insurance for a ride home. So while you may not be able to get a full internship, you can also always ask to shadow a shift or two. That may need be enough to get the right people in your circle, to get yourself familiar with that organization. You know, so finding some ways to get what you need, even if it's not your assigned internship or the internship that you really wanted, or if you take a deferment and it still doesn't work out in the spring, there's lots of ways to get your needs met. Mm -hmm. Another thing that we want to unpack a little bit is safety. So what does safety mean right now to you and your family? And what does that mean to your school? And, you know, being open to having that conversation in your circle and with folks at the university. You know, would you feel safe if there was personal protective equipment? Would a reduced schedule make you feel more safe for you or one day virtual, one day with clients? Would no home visits, but only working in a clinic make you safe? You know, can your internship be virtual? What would be different between a virtual and traditional internship for that agency? And are those changes you can live with? So we know that many of you have already had to make these choices, and I hope you know that you likely made the best decision you could with the information you had at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's okay to be okay with your decision. It may not be the perfect decision, but, you know, again, keep an open mind. The most important thing you're getting out of your internship is experience. Even if it's not the exact experience you thought, it is still useful in the field. You will find the same things come up over and over again, regardless of where you were working to where you are working. In my personal experience, I feel like I I learned more in those field placements and internships that I was not so sure about. And I learned so many things, including what not to do right. uh, from those placements that were not the ideal or my desired number one choice. And I left with so much knowledge and information on everything, with everything, you know, crisis intervention and documentation and so many other things. So, yeah, having a, an open mind and just being open to whatever opportunities are out there will be key. Definitely. So I'm a field instructor again this year. And again, I'm lucky enough to take interns from multiple states and schools. So with all of this in mind, just like we kind of gave you that, you know, grades of salt on pushing your professors and making it practical, push on your internship. So it's your internship. You're paying tuition money and credit hours to work for free in most situations. So ask questions and try things. Shadow different departments. I know that's something that both Imelda and I are huge advocates for. You may have to report to a field liaison who's an MSW, but one of the most valuable things that I used to do is have social work interns shadow a nurse for a day or two. See if they can follow around a doctor. You know, it totally changes our perception on the interdisciplinary learning. Oh, yes. And, you know, from everything, you know, maybe you shadow the front desk for a day and see what it's like to be the first person to talk to someone in crisis. Mm -hmm. You know, don't don't give up any opportunity. If you see someone doing something, ask, what do they do? 
can I follow them around for a day, even if it's just a couple hours, you know, or if not, can we get coffee after work? Can I have their business cards? That way you get, you know, the full breadth and depth of an agency is never just social workers. Of course. Yeah. And, and I feel like social workers in any, I think in any placement or line of work, we always work with other people. We always collaborate with with others you know if we're working at a school as a school social worker you have to interact with students and parents and the counselor and the nurse and the teachers and so you will never work in silos with as a social worker so shadowing it's really really beneficial in your internships and sometimes this is something that we don't always push as much as we should I think um it's often overlooked And I think one way to start pushing into that is with your learning contract. So Mm -hmm. a lot of times you get your learning contract from the school. It's got a few templated options. You know, maybe you get kind of a book of stuff to choose from or your agency says this is how we do it. Um, It's your learning contract. Put activities on there that benefit you. So like, for example, and I know Imelda went through this, too. A lot of us have to make that really tough choice between direct practice and PAC or policy advocacy and community practice, you know, macro type social work. So I wrote in a ton of PAC activities into my learning contract. I was still in a direct practice internship, but I wanted to go to a city council meeting and shadow a city councilor for a day. You know, I wanted to make sure that I spoke at the legislature at least one time during the semester that my internship gave me time off to do that. So making sure that your learning contract is about your learning and not what anyone else expects you to learn or come out of school with. That's really, I mean, it's a contract between you, your agency and the school for what you're supposed to graduate with. So make it work for you and your needs and your dreams. With all that said, you got to keep track of stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. So documentation, supervision, evaluations, it's in your best interest. You're also entitled to supervision from a social worker. Again, you may have a task instructor. Some of your most valuable learning may come from a non-social worker, but make sure that your agency gives it to you. You deserve, you're entitled to working with another social worker who provides you direct feedback on what you're doing. And then, you know, work with your field instructor. Um, Most of us have been there ourselves, right? Like there's really not many social workers out there who didn't go through an internship um, at some points. We've been there ourselves and we know that things are different because those social workers are in the thick of it, right? A lot of them (laughs) are doing this work full time. Mm -hmm. We're not perfect, but we're likely trying and we want there to be more great social workers in the world. You know, I think for a lot of time I lived with this little colonel that, you know, that turn to your left, turn to your right. You're in competition with all these people. But really, when you get out into the world and you're like, oh, my gosh, we could really use about, I don't know, maybe an extra 10, 20,000 social workers right now. They are your competition, but they're not. The more great social workers in the world, the better. And a lot of times we do want you to work with us after your internships. We want you to succeed now so that we can, you know, plug and play when the semester is done. Mm You know, we can rock and roll with someone who's already trained. They know the people, they know the system. A lot of us love hiring former interns. So, well, the field instructor is a really important and direct part of your learning experience. You're also given a field liaison, which Imelda is and has been one. Um, So Imelda, tell us a little bit about what a field liaison is and does. So I've been a field liaison for about three years now um, and it might look different from, you know, depending on the school, but the field liaison, and we might have different names, you know, depending on your school or the right. university, but the field liaison is the connection between 
your school and the agency. So we work for the university. We work for the for the school. But we are the person um, who is like the main point of contact between the agency where you're being placed, yourself and, you know, the field office at our school. So we are the ones who do the review, the learning contract at the beginning of the semester. We are the ones who check in with your supervisor on site. We're the one who send your grades to the school. Yeah. So... The majority of field liaisons are working professionals um, and, you know, they have their full time jobs and they work, I guess, like part time or hourly for the school to be that liaison person between the school and the agency. And something to remember, Jennifer mentioned that that you're paying for this. Like This is a service that you pay with your tuition money to have a field liaison to be your advocate at the school. So sometimes I feel like students see field liaisons as um, more of as an authority person mm -hmm. that like, oh, you know, I get an email from a field liaison that I will have to do my evaluation and I'm a little nervous because I'm going to get graded on this. But I you should see it in the other the other way that the field liaison is being placed by the school to be your advocate at the agency. So I always tell students, the students that I supervise as a field liaison to always tell me when things are not going right. If you are getting to your uh, placement and they're sitting in the front desk to answer phones and make coffee, that's something that should be reported to your field liaison right away because you're paying money to be at this interview internship and you should be getting the most out of it. You should not be sitting making copies and making coffee because it's not going to be beneficial for anyone. But we don't know what's wrong if you don't tell us. So the field liaison is there to advocate for for you and for your internship and making sure that you have a great experience there. Um, and sometimes there's been cases where just the placement is not working at all. And right. your field liaison is the person who is going to help you find another place or advocate for you with the school to transition to another place. So advocate for yourself and your internship placement. Always, you know, have that at the top of your of your list of making sure that you're getting the most out of it. Keep track of your, of your hours and your documentation for supervision. Um, you're supposed to meet with your field supervisor at least once a week or every other week. Keep track of your hours because nobody else is keeping track of them but you. So when it's time to turning grades or your field liaison says like, hey, how are you doing with your hours? We're expecting you to give us a specific number or where you're at. Um, Like I said, we don't know if you're struggling until you let us know, especially when we do a remote supervision, especially when I'm not able to go into the agency and sit face to face with you and your supervisor on site, just basing my interaction on what I hear from you on a text or an email. So making sure that you always let me know or let your field liaison know what's going on. No, let Imelda know. Let Imelda know. <laughs> Everyone send me your emails. And think of your field liaison As, as a coach for your internship. Your field liaison can help you brainstorm ideas on how to approach certain situations or tasks, um, especially last semester when we were all transitioning all students from being on site to remote work because agencies were shutting down or were closing for a month or so. We had to get really creative right. with some of our students and like, okay, like if you, uh, if you can do this remote and let's have you create some curriculum for this um, group that you're going to lead in the fall, you know, whenever you go back to your agency. So 
if you're looking for ideas on how to fill out your learning contract, your affiliation is a great person to go to. So hopefully what we have presented today is helpful for you. Um, I know that field work and internships looks very different based on the school, based on your state, where you're located. But hopefully we give you a little bit of insight of how we do things as instructors and also working in the field. I mean, with all of this, this is, you know, two people's opinions on how to do this. So take what you need and you feel is relevant and it's okay to leave what you don't. You know, we won't be offended. Again, six ways to do everything. Here's, you know, one and a half ways to do it because Imelda and I overlap a lot. Um, But if you have feedback or there's, you know, specific things that you're struggling with this school year, we'd love to hear about it. Um, So where can you find us to contact us, Imelda? You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Social Workers Break Room. You can contact us via email at info at socialworkersbreakroom.com. You can also check out our cute little shop where we have some uh, very fun items on our website, socialworkersbreakroom.com. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share with your friends if you like what you hear. So when it comes to your internship in this classes this semester, in the worlds of the brilliant Miss Frizzle from Magic School Bus, Take chances, make mistakes, and get messy, but not too messy. Not too messy. (laughs) We'll see you next time.